we, we learn very quickly not to trust these people. A lot of intimidation. We live through a lot of intimidation. We still do to this day. Yeah, we still do to this day, like, you know. So we're not just up against a company, we're up against our government. It's a network of people helping each other in the hierarchy, and we're just the ordinary people on the ground suffering the consequences. After the gold rush, a rural Ireland has been selected as a green sacrifice zone by the global mining industry and Irish government and what local communities are doing about it. Episode 4, Living and Dying with Mining. What's it like to live with mining? Since the 1990s, Pat and Nuala Gagan, their family, neighbours, animals and environment in County Limerick have suffered the consequences. We'll hear their tragic yet defiant story later in the episode. Geraldine Ward, her family and neighbours have lived for generations with impacts of mining. Geraldine is a housewife, spokeswoman and vice-chairman for the Drumgosset Knocknacran Residence Group in County Monaghan. The underground mine started, it opened in 1958, so this company are in our parish quite a while. And the underground mine that I'm talking about, where the collapse happened, um, closed. It opened in 1958. It closed in 1989. And would you believe back in those days, there was no planning granted for it. They never needed planning permission. And then the first open cast came to our parish with the same company in 1984. And it's still operating. And they have now a new proposed plan for an, a second open cast. So within time, we're going to have a large underground mine, um, which they will turn into an open cast, and a second open cast with an underground mine attached to it. So for a parish that's 15 miles long, three miles wide, with 2,000 of a population, it's quite extensive for our area, to be quite honest with you. But um, I suppose bringing us to um, 24th September 2018, our son, who's now 23, had just started his first year in college so we went with him on that weekend to get him set up in his apartment we were aware that there was a huge ingress of water for three months during the summer so june july august and it was going into the old mine but like that you know the company needed to get rid of it so we as locals didn't think much of it didn't like it didn't like the smell of the sulfur but you know we weren't people to make noise up until now so we got on with our daily lives. We headed away to Donegal with our son. Monday morning we get a phone call, which initially I thought was a joke from a friend saying that there was a collapse on the GEA grounds and the community centre that the ground beneath had gone. And I was like to my husband, I was like, nope, this is a joke. And next I get the photos that are coming in on WhatsApp and I'm like, oh dear Lord, this is not a joke. This is real. Our neighbours, five neighbours, uh, two families which are on our road, we're all evacuated. If you can vision a narrow road with, as I said, two families on it, ourselves and the local school. Subsequently, those five families have been rehoused. They're not coming back, so they're not. Uh, now they had a struggle to get that. You know, it took a number of years, so it did over two years. It, you know, initially the company would have said we won't be seen to be wanting, but it took them quite a while to rehome those people. Subsequently, after the mine collapsed, um, our road was closed. Uh, both roads, we have LP4900, is the local road into our parish, the main road into our parish, and it closed for eight months. And our main road, R179, it closed for a number of weeks. But we were without the main road into our parish for eight months, taking what people would call boreens, secondary roads that weren't fit for the traffic they were on. Going back to the day of the collapse, it was horrendous. When we got home that Monday evening, we got stopped and we have to re be rerouted to our home. We get to our crossroad and the barrier is up. So we have to sign in to get into our house. Every time we left, we had to sign out and put the time on it because they feared we could disappear. Yet in all the company have said we are unaffected, even though we had to do all that. That went on for eight months. That was manned. So it was by the local county council at a huge fee. 
the garden where I've constantly, finally, eight months later, our road opened. There's continuous reports being done. The company have a, a group called SRK that does their reports. And on foot of that, then the government have a company called Wardell and Armstrong. Now, ironically, Wardell and Armstrong work now for the government. But guess who designed the open cast mine we have? Wardell and Armstrong. So it's a network of people helping each other in the hierarchy. And we're just the ordinary people on the ground suffering the consequence. 36 hours before that collapse, there was 120 children taking part in a blitz, which is like a GEA game, football, and their parents and friends. So there was many, many people on that pitch 36 hours beforehand. You know, it could have been a different story if it had to be the day previous. It states on paper, black and white from this company, SRK, that any excessive amount of water to enter the mine would take down some of the pillars. There was never to be excess water. Groundwater, fine, you know, storage water, but not excess. That it would go down. This company, Jiprock, Sangobanus they're known, but we call them Jiprock locally. They hit an ingress of water in their open cast slash small underground mine in a place called Knocknabran. It's all the one parish. And they couldn't control that water. So they had to make a very quick decision as to where they were going to store it. Like there was millions of gallons a minute. It wasn't per day. And it went on for three months. And they decided. And they put their hands up and said, we decided to put it into the old mine. We knew it could make it more unstable. But we took that decision. They could have stopped their work and they could have brought in, which in the end they had to, companies to concrete it. And, you know, it's still at that position. If that concrete was to come out in the morning, it's, it's, the water's still in there. Like. This, this underground mine that destroyed our parish is now proposed to be an open cast. This is the company's way of telling us that they will make it good by turning it into an open cast. It will be safe. All the while, we know the reason they want to turn it into an open cast is because the rock that was left behind is still there, and that's money. The EPA, health and safety, basically nobody's doing their job right because they're backed by the government. This company are backed by the government. Our government leaves this country yearly to sell Ireland as open for mining. So we're not just up again a company, we're up again our government. There's a new development plan in the process of being scrutinised in the doll, and if we will not have the say we had this time last year, if that was true. What we wanted initially, Jerry, when this happened, was an independent inquiry, because the law has been on the company side for 80 years, and it was time that this was the one chance we had, maybe, you know, for them to be called out and to be seen for what they were, and we put it, we we started off like a small group in our local school to support the people who had left been evacuated from their homes. And that progressed then into meeting local county councillors, TDs. Then that progressed into meeting ministers and a stakeholder forum was set up. And at one of those, the minister was there, um, Sean Canning. He was the Minister of State and Natural Resources. And he came to that meeting that night and we asked him for an independent inquiry. And I'll never forget his answer. His answer was he rejected that we get it on the grounds that there was reports being done. This was in the early days, so you're talking about maybe early 2019. And if we delayed the reports, they knew if we got that, a lot of a lot of dirt would come out and a lot of, you know, questions would have to be answered. So we never got it. We've been meeting with TDs because there's the new development bill going in, planning bill going in, and we've been meeting with TDs about this. And one of them actually, a TD, said she was unaware that any government members travel to other countries to promote Ireland for mining. <laughs> we asked her, did she want photographic evidence that they're doing it, seeing as she didn't know? God love her. It is. It's corrupt from the bottom up, from the bottom down, or from the top down, sorry. Well, the bottom of the mine as well, it seems to be. Uh, <laughs> from the bottom and yeah, the that top. Might, that might actually work better from the bottom up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the most we can hope for, Jerry, and it probably won't happen either because it'd have to come in under legislation, is better monitoring. Dust monitoring is, at the moment, what we call a jam jar. There is a scientific name on it, but that's what it looks like. You can put flowers in it. We have done. And that's supposed to gather dust. Not a chance. Their noise vibrator when they're letting their blasts off, which is every couple of Thursdays, is held down by a sandbag. 
I for one won't move if you put a sandbag on me, so neither will that monitor. More regulations is as good as I think we're going to get if we are to get anything in this parish. The company will tell you they're unaware of the EPA if they're, you know, the call unannounced. But we all know the day the EPA are coming because um, they, they wash the roads, they, they prepare for them. So everybody in the parish knows they're coming by the company. And and anything, you know, you have, you call them out. My brother has called the EPA numerous times to his home because he lives directly across from the open cast, that big system one. And they've come with their monitors. And sure enough, on the day that they come, the blast that they let off is minimum. They've broken their license with the EPA numerous times. And as a reward, last year, the EPA tripled their license. So now they can triple the amount of sulfur they can put in. It gets better. Um, when we had our stakeholder forum meetings, we, the chief geologist, her first name was Eileen, she's now retired, uh, told us about how they would travel to the underground mine, the existing one, the one that isn't closed. They would travel to it, so they would, and um, they would inspect it. And she was asked, and how do you inspect it? Like, how does your team of workers inspect it? And she says, well, we go in and they show us, the company show us X, Y, and Z. Somebody put it to her. So you take the company at their word. Do you actually put anything up into the roof of the mine or into the ground of it to see is it stable? And she said, no, that would, no, we don't do that. But then there's no way of actually telling if it's stable. If You know, if you walk into a, a bedroom and you look around it, it could look well. But there's no telling. You need to know what's above you and beneath you. And they're not doing that, in particular in a mine. So there's nobody actually doing their job right, to be quite honest with you. And we have nobody no independent body, none. We have the monitors on our road to detect movement and the people who oversee the monitors, this company. Nobody else, not our county council, nobody, only the company. They've got it all sewn up. Our homes are devalued. The land is of no benefit to anybody. Nobody can build on it. Nobody would want to build on it, but even if they did, they can't. Anybody out there that is fighting prospective licenses for God's sake, don't let them in on your land, no matter what they offer you. Because once they're in, you will not get rid of them. They will ruin your life, ruin your land. The company that we're dealing with has never, ever, ever had anybody go up against them now. Ever. And they didn't think we'd go as far as we have. Mining will always impact the environment. It will turn valleys into mountains and mountains into valleys. A geologist told Anthony McNulty in Wicklow that the lithium mining would be great. They were going to give them a lake where the mountain used to be. For Geraldine and her family and neighbours, the land beneath their feet became unstable. And imagine this happening all over the world at exponentially rising levels. 25 billion tonnes of this unearthing in the year 1970 and in just 50 years 100 billion tonnes of this unearthing in the year 2020 and in another 30 years in 2050 170 billion tonnes of this wrecking of valleys and ruining of mountains. A Mount Everest worth of extraction every year and it'll keep growing. Every year it'll keep growing, driven by the growth death cult, disrupting water, poisoning air, land, poisoning everything with its toxic waste. The mining company said that Geraldine's family was unaffected by this unearthing, even though their lives were turned upside down. How many more must pay the price of progress? How much must nature pay until it's too much? We are overdrawing from the bank of nature. We are bankrupting our environment, leaving huge toxic debts for future generations to pay. In Ireland, it seems that mining companies police themselves the good old Irish way, essentially. I heard the same stories from Pat and Nuala Gagan Geraldine talks about the so-called unannounced visits from the EPA. And I heard the same stories about Lachine Mine in Tipperary 
and it's supposed to be a modern model mine that the Irish state likes to tout as this wonderful example of modernity. A miner who worked at Lachine laughed when EPA inspections were brought up. There was no such thing as a safe mine, he stated. Only a safe safety inspection. The miners decide where the safety inspection happens. The head miner decides where the inspector goes. The EPA inspector does not dictate where he goes. When it comes to all this new mining extravaganza that has been planned, the message from the Irish government is simple. Trust us, we look after you. What has become very clear in my research is that over the last 50 years, the Irish state has shown considerably more interest in protecting the multinationals than in protecting the local communities whose environments these multinationals often polluted. We will soon learn how from the 70s onwards, Ireland was positioned as a cheap, toxic dumping ground in order to attract multinationals who were chaffing at environmental regulations in their home countries, particularly in the USA. In the 1970s and 1980s, Ireland was desperate for jobs, any jobs, and mining is for desperate places that are willing to be devastated. Ireland today is a very rich country, a very different place with lots of options. So it amazes me that the Irish government is out there abroad aggressively promoting Ireland as a mining heaven, a mining haven, to the extent that the Republic of Ireland is now rated by mining companies as the most mining-friendly country in the world, and Northern Ireland is rated as the third most mining-friendly. Isn't that just wonderful? I was brought up in a very political Fine Gael family, and trust in the state runs deep. I know there is corruption in Ireland, though I don't believe corruption is the primary force driving the decision-making on mining. I think it's ideology capture. It seems that top civil servants and politicians have become hardcore members of the growth debt cult, and that every decision is viewed based on its ability to drive growth, to drive GDP. There is a saying, that which makes you strong can kill you in the end. There's a decent argument that without a huge focus on growth through encouraging foreign investment, the standard of living in Ireland would be much less than it is today. Jobs, jobs, jobs. That's always been the mantra. However, industries such as mining and data centres bring less and less jobs because they have become highly automated industries. Mining today is fast and furious and highly automated. A mine will last on average about 10 to 15 years, whereas a mine 150 or 200 years ago might be expected to last 80 to 100 years. The machines are much bigger and much more devastating. Even 30 years ago, a typical mining dumper truck would probably be carrying a 20 to 30 ton load. Now, there are trucks that can carry 300 ton loads, with the largest monster trucks carrying 450 tons. So mining, even if we were to ignore for a moment its environmental devastation, is not the jobs machine it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, we put Ireland's environment up for sale on the then equivalent of eBay. The ad said, are your profits being reduced by crazy environmental restrictions? Come to Ireland, the country of a light touch, practical approach to the environment where you can dump your toxic waste without worry and watch your profits rise. P.S. We also do tax havens. 
The Irish approach today is the same as always. Let's get the industry in and then we'll worry about those pesky environmental regulations later. While Irish households have reduced their demand for electricity by 9% in the last couple of years, electricity demand from data centres, for example, has soared 31%. A truly astonishing 18% of Ireland's electricity now goes to feed over 80 data centres. And the government's response is nothing to worry about, nothing to worry about at all. That's as much electricity as all of urban Ireland. The smug and arrogant data centre industry just smirks and says to shut up and be glad for high tech. One expert said, Ireland is a very attractive data centre location if maximising profit is one of your primary goals. Reducing carbon after the fact can be accomplished by other means. 90% of data is not used three months after it's stored. In other words, it's crap. So data centers are essentially toxic dumps for toxic crap. That's Ireland for you. An environmental dump, whether for mining waste, toxic chemicals or data waste. Ireland will not meet its carbon budget targets for 2021 to 2025 or for 2026 to 2030 unless urgent action is taken, the Irish National Broadcaster RTE reported in July 2023. This idea that we get the polluting industry in that most other countries would try and avoid and then later we figure it all out it's not working, it will not work. It's time for modern Ireland to grow up. We cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. We cannot have infinite growth on a finite island. Pat and Nuala Gagan, their children and neighbours, would bear the brunt of the pollution and the obsession with infinite growth that has resulted from this practical and short-sighted approach. To this day, their family is suffering the most severe health consequences. On a warm, late July afternoon in 2022, I met Pat and Nuala in the Woodlands Hotel, just outside Adair in County Limerick, and my life changed. It was clear to see Pat was not well, he was suffering from heart problems and other ailments as a result of inhaling the red mud and other toxins coming from Akinish Alumina plant just five miles or eight kilometres from their farm. It was a meeting that would change how I planned to spend the rest of my life. I listened to their story in disbelief at first. I had to say that I was initially somewhat sceptical. As I said earlier, I grew up in a staunch Fine Gael family. I believed in the state and I still do. I wanted to be a better country, a better society. From the ashes of colonial and imperial abuse, the Irish people have achieved much to be proud of. The story I heard from Nuala and Pat shook my fate in the Irish state though. It scared me. I couldn't believe it. How could the state do something like this? How could the state treat its own citizens so poorly? They will leave their own to die if they have to. Pat quoted me the words of a local politician who had told him this off the record. It's the price of progress, you see. A price and a cost the environment and the local people have been asked to pay again and again. And again, when does the price become too much? It seems that the long overdraft from nature and the environment is now coming due. There was a serious black cloud and something just told us. We ran over and we got our second daughter, Megan, out of school. Like, out of national school, we made up some excuse and left at her. But we felt this, there was something about this black cloud and came over our farm. Like 48 hours later, he had a... Um, 
we thought this is our saviour, we're going to find you know, they had the Department of Culture, they had Tagish, they had the EPA who was newly formed, like oh God, this is great, they're going to help us save our animals, like, and save our livelihood, because our livelihood was going down the drain, like, I mean, like, and we were only something like 17 days into the investigation when they got our vets to write a damning report about us, like, you know, that, oh, wish we were some of the worst farmers. We, we learned very quickly not to trust these people, and we recorded everything if they came in and they blooded our animals, we looked for split samples because we realised at this stage we couldn't trust them. So by the time we came out of that investigation two years later, they didn't call us bad farmers. They didn't come down that side, but they were one of the ones that didn't call bad farmers because my father had never bought in animals. We were a closed herd and we had very good records of every cow was out of them. You know, the calf and their name with all our animals named. Our GP finally convinced Dr. Kevin Keller, who was the head of the very minute side of the health side to start taking blood samples from us. He couldn't tell us. He just took them in. I guess he said, I can't tell you what to do. I don't know what to test for. Because I don't know what's below in that company, the chemicals that are being used or what's in it. We could tell him what was in it because the EPA, it was there if you went looking for it, the EPA. But the EPA wouldn't tell you straight out. But if you went down, if you went actually looking, you could figure out what the EPA knew what was in it. From from toxicology yeah. in, in England that they brought in to tell them what was going on. They had told them how to look for like caustic aluminium and things like that. You so, know, but they kept that quiet from us all yeah. in, in case you'd look for it. So after two years of giving in all these bloods, we gave him something like 20 different bloods. Those bloods mysteriously ended up being missing. Even though we were told those very vials of blood were sent to Dublin and London for testing. Horrified. They were giving in over two years, and all of a sudden, all these samples went missing. And we kept looking for these, the rest of these results, nothing coming, until eventually I got something like a five liner of letters telling me all the samples were lost. And then it went on to be granted an IPC license, license straight away, to clear of any wrongdoing in the state investigation. There's a lot of cancer. I mentioned when we met about there's a funeral of a child teenagers are going on, but like, is it, is it, what a cancer. We've met people who did this health diary that I mentioned earlier on, and say if one child had asthma and your other child didn't have asthma, they focused in on the child that had nothing. We, produ we produced our own study in the Kappa area of within 700 of a population that was either 60 or 70 that had cancer. But when we brought that um, to Dr. Kevin Keller and even to the Taoiseach, who was Minister for Health at the time in 2001, they came, they came back and said there was no problem. What, what they did was they produced an area next to it that had a, a DED area of 4,000 population. They brought, in the, they brought in the 4,000 population into the 700, which meant they were able to dilute the problem of where the cancers was to get out of it. So they have all the tricks of the trade, like, you know, and, and, and we are, we, but like, we don't have the power, men have, having to get bypassed, like I yeah. have, is huge, because, I, because the farmers are out there in, in you know, farming, and they're yeah. out in the yeah. land, and they're out there, and I'm not yeah. saying that women aren't out there, because they are out there, right, but they, they may be in more than the men. And it seems that the, that the farmers are getting a lot of, of heart bypasses, getting heart attacks and things like that. Oh, respiratory yeah. problems, asthma, you know, you know stuff like that. Patrick left a triple bypass. I can show you. How it, you because know, he, it, he never drank, he never smoked, like, you know what I mean? But we're smoking it, in this yeah. company. Mm. We might as well be smoking, like, you know. Yeah. We've never recovered from those financial losses, like, you know, because I lost half of the land, like all my mom's land, because of banks yeah. and close, closing on us and things like, you know, because we stood up, we feel that a lot of, we suffered because we stood up to these authorities, like, you know. Farmers were threatened, some of the farmers were threatened, like, a lot of intimidation, we lived through a lot of intimidation. And still do to this day. Yeah, we still do to this day, like, you know. Whatever stuff is left over, um, it's, it's usually pushed off the jetty, and it goes into the estuary, and uh, it, it heaps at the bottom of the, of the jetty. That means that it um, kind of like a stockpile over the years. It compacts. They do dredging. It's like a plough. 
it sits on top of the bauxite and it just pulls it out in into the shannon. Whatever's down there should be taken up through the plant and put into these um, ponds. Um, that's um, extra cost. We know they don't care about the environment. Um, the EP, we have reported that to the EPA and the EPA can't find it down there even though that um, the dogs in the street knows in, in how they were dumping it. So like um, that the EPA, um, you know, we've lost confidence in the, in the EPA and uh, the EPA just looks after these um, big multinationals. Our environment um, is it's destroyed. It just damages whatever uh, in the water before it. Um, fish's eyes and things get burned. Say the likes of caustic being pushed up through the chimneys out into the air. And it's just not bauxite alone. As I said, it's these other chemicals that gets added where you, you're looking at, at other problems. Um, so the Irish EPA reclassified it from hazardous to non-hazardous. To facilitate, you know. Company so, didn't change process one bit. When it comes down to our farm, it's hazardous. But when it's down on, on the aluminum plant, it's on non-hazardous. You know, so like, you, we're getting the full whack of it. When this comes up through the plant, the bauxite, and all this is added, you have uh, the waste is pumped out into these tailing ponds. They're 450 acres in size. The EPA classes it as about 35 million. If we, if we were to call it today in, in 2022, we would be saying that them, there's a, you're looking at 75 million tons at least down there. When the ponds were uh, constructed in 1983, uh, they were allowed to not line the these ponds so that there wouldn't be any seepage into the into the when estuary. We, when you, when you say a pond, explain what a pond is well, a, to people. A pond, a pond would be a big hole in the ground. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That, 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 that's just about it. And the first one was about two hundred and fifty acres in size, but there was about one hundred and fifty acres of that never lined. There has never been any chicks down there to see it. So the EPA licensed a facility in uh, 1998 uh, which gave them permission to pollute. If chemicals are sitting there since 1983 um, how do they interact with each other? Like you have arsenic, yeah, you have arsenic, you have uranium, you have cad cadmium, you have strontium, like you, you have um, dangerous, dangerous chemicals that sits there. How does they Entwine in each other. How does no. the, how does they affect each other? And when it blows, are we getting them individually affecting our human health or our animals, or are we getting them changed in such a way mm. that it makes them more lethal? If you keep putting chemicals on top of other chemicals, it's thirty-two meters above sea level. So, like the higher you go, means that the wind is able to Whip the the red dried, the, no. when it's dried the red dust onto our farms. It it travels. It's it's just not alone. Is it in in Eskeaton or whatever? It travels to Mayo. It travels to Nigal. It, it it travels all over the place. What the EPA were doing before was they were saying, "Oh, the Sahara dust." But the Sahara dust wasn't coming all the time at all. It was anish with the red dust that was traveling over Ireland. But the best way that the EPA could get anish out of the problem was to say that it was Sahara dust. We know that the Sahara dust does come to Ireland, but it's not coming that the amount of times that they're saying like big. Now, and the other thing that the EPA can't maintain is that it can come onto our farm. These ponds are 450 acres in size, but the, the EPA will not admit that they come onto our farm, but they can admit that they can come from the Sahara to, to, to Ireland or onto our farm, but we're five miles as the crow flies, but they won't admit that, that it's a hinge that comes on to two hours. So when it got up the chimneys, the, the, because they were using oil, which had a 4.5% uh, sulfur contents, it meant that the chimneys were starting to close in because it was sticking to the to the chimneys, which, you know, so which means that, that they had to do um, a sort of blowout. Uh, and the problem was that the, the chemicals used in that process to try and clean what came from the mining process that was going through the plant was even as bad Worse, yeah, as yeah. the thing because um, the, the nickel was very high in that. The vanadium 
that was used was very high in that. And what they had to do was to blow that up the chimneys, clean the chimneys. And that was done uh, 365 days of the year. 92, I had my first little one, Amanda. And that year, the animals never, our baby calves never went out of the sheds. They were constantly coming down with pneumonia, as we presumed high temperatures in an, an animal and baby calf, like you presume from your previous knowledge of this must be pneumonia or something. But they never thrived. Every time we tried to put them out into the grass, they just, we had to get them back in. They were all sick and the vet was coming in and coming out and giving them antibiotics or whatever. And a lot of them died on a little sore that might be the size of the button on your phone, the push button that opens your iPhone would suddenly be a dinner plate size by the time the animals come to death, like, you know. And by that time, we had put so much antibiotics, every type of uh, medicine into her, our veterinary bills were building up. At the same time, Patrick's health was deteriorating. He was constantly having to go to our late GP, Dr. Anne Tehan, for antibiotics, which was, as she thought, constantly getting reoccurring chest infections. That's what it appeared like. In later years, because of having met someone down the line and educated ourselves through going into libraries and reading books and things we discovered it was just agitation from the chemicals flowing from Luna. Your body tries to expel it, you know, and it appears like you have chest infections. Same with our animals. Our animals were just inhaling this, eating this. Their animals just actually died standing up. They're a Russian company now. They're owned by Olga Deripaska. He's a personal friend of Putin's. So, you know, we have our highest of our politicians, like here, Radkar and, and, and others, who, who can visit this, uh, this plant uh, to, to ask um, Mr. Deripaska, are you okay? We, we'll ensure that you won't be upset. We'll ensure that um, you know that, that you'll be able to keep working, and we'll ensure that there'll be no sanctions on you, so we can get around that for you, um, Mr. Darapaska. And I'm sure um, your friend um, Putin will will be very impressed with us. We can do that for you, but we won't visit the um, the farm of Pat and Nola Gagan and, and and other ones in the area, because um, we treat our Irish citizens as um, third class citizens when it comes to that. It comes into your homes, like, you know, you're not safe inside your home, you're not safe It inside. is airborne, and once it's airborne, if, if it was in the water, you can control it some bit, maybe. But once it's airborne, it gets out, and there's no, there is no... And there is no mask, like Dr. Paul Connett, as he said, there is no mask known to men. So protect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. These small... And he knew he was so small. Professor Paul Connett came over from from America now, and he he had talked about the red stuff coming onto our farm, like, and he says, "How do you know if red stuff is on their farm? Well, you know that they have black Wellingtons on. They walk through their 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 fields, and when they come out, they're red. They damage our kids. They destroyed our lives. You can go and you can die without saying a word, but we are the opposite. Before we'll die, we are going to be vocal, and we're going to stay vocal." The Shannon Estuary, where you will find Oginish alumna located, was one of the original environmental sacrifice zones selected by the Irish state in order to drive progress and development. Burning Isle, the local Tarbert power station, commenced operations in 1969. Burning Coal, the Money Pint power station, commenced operations in 1987. Until the early 2000s, it seems neither of these stations used any techniques to clean the fumes and toxic particulates that they were emitting. For years, this area of the Shannon Estuary was responsible for 50% of Ireland's entire sulphur pollution. Derry Chambers, a wonderful environmentalist and great source of research and information, told me that state agency on Forrest Forba argued in the early 90s that this wasn't of concern, as most of the emissions were grounded in Wales. Wow. Yeah. Right. Grounded in Wales. So not a problem. The same lack of pollution control was true for the Okinish Alumna plant during that period. It is now owned by Oleg Deripaska, Putin's 
favourite oligarch, but that's another story. Its two giant 107 metre chimneys had to be blast cleaned every single day because of the huge quantities of sulphur, nitrogen, CO2, dust and soot they were pumping out. The pollution was relentless and state approved. Between 1987 and 2001, for example, over 4 million tonnes of heavy fuel oil was used. This filthiest of filthiest oil is what ocean cargo ships use. During those years, the two chimneys pumped into the Limerick countryside around 2 tonnes of sulphur, 3 tonnes of nitrogen and over 100 kg of soot. Not every year, not every month, not every week, not every day, every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. And they call this clean and green aluminium. They sure do, they sure do. The chimneys got so dirty so quickly that every single day they had to be blast cleaned by sending a powerful chemical mix up them. Conveniently, this was done at night so nobody would notice. The animals noticed. The birds noticed. The wildlife noticed. The fish noticed. Think of the toxic power of the concoction required to clean those chimneys and you're thinking of just a part of the toxic cocktail that nature was suffering. Cows would develop sores the size of a scent and within weeks it would be the size of a dinner plate. Horses stood in fields, their skin literally peeling off in the wind. As a local Billy Maguire put it, it was like snow. It was coming down. It got to the stage when I had to put two rugs under two house cows and the two horses. If I didn't, all their skin got burnt off. There was a horse next door and literally you could see the raw skin. All the skin was blown off around the fields. The other side of me, the cattle, they were losing their skin. They were suffering. Animals died standing up. On one farm, 62 horses and more than 100 cattle had died over a seven-year period. That's not normal. For cows, the intake of aluminium is about 500 times more than that of humans. On another farm, with about 80 animals, in 1990, two cows and four calves died. In 1991, two cows and six calves died. 1992, four cows and nine calves died. 1993, eight cows, 14 calves, two dry stock and two bullocks died. Simon White's farm was right next to the Gagans. Simon talked of an invisible cloud that would come onto the farm and your face would start to tingle and you would get caught for breath and it would hurt my children had rashes on their faces and I got lung damage. Whatever we were breeding was very volatile. Another local farmer, Suzanne Ryan said, Justin and I have had to leave our farm and our families in order to give our children a future because there's none left on this poisoned farm. We also know that the finger will never be pointed at the source of the problem. Yet another local farmer, Pat Callahan, summed it up as follows. They are fooling us, fooling us, and they had no intention of fixing it. The whole thing was rotten to the core. They were hoping that they'd bury it, and to an extent they did. They destroyed people. When you look back at it, it is one of the more corrupt things in poor Owl Ireland, and it's all promoted by dishonest politicians. Most Irish people have no clue all this pollution and damage happened. Where was the Environmental Protection Agency in all this? We've lost confidence in the EPA, Pat Gagan says. The EPA just looks after these big multinationals. Far-fetched, Dr Paul Toner, 
who was in overall charge of the EPA's sham investigation into Akenish alumna in the 90s, literally is on record as saying, somebody must defend industry. You'd think that the EPA would put their foot down and say, you know, we don't recommend that kind of industry in the west of Ireland, Jacinta van Roge from Clare told me in a previous episode. It doesn't make sense. So the fact that they're not doing that, not in our area or anywhere else, is indicative, of course, that they're facilitating. It's nothing but the same old story in 2023. When push comes to shove, the role of the EPA is to shove government policy, no matter how detrimental that policy is to be to the environment. The EPA is a shield that cynical civil servants and politicians can hide behind and pretend that they actually care about the environment. We did have a lot of interaction with the EPA around fracking, so we do know a little about the EPA, Eddie Mitchell told me in a previous episode. And our concern at the time was that the EPA were going to be used as a champion for the fracking industry. Imagine that, an official state environmental organisation being a champion for the fracking industry. I know for a fact that if anything starts up on that hill, the EPA cannot be relied on. Anthony McNulty from Wicklow said to me in a previous episode, they're about as much use as a chimney on a cat. In fact, they're about as much use as a chocolate chimney on a cat. As Derry Chambers of the Cork Environmental Alliance put it, we, Cork Environmental Alliance, have always been of the view that the EPA was set up to give legal camouflage to pollution. In other words, once pollution is sanctified by the issuing by the EPA of an industrial emissions permit, then it is extremely difficult legally to sue a company for any damages arising from that licensed pollution. And given that the EPA itself is immune from prosecution, John Citizen has no legal redress for damages suffered by a licensed emission. And in Northern Ireland, it's as bad, if not worse. Dr. Emmerman said that he has worked in over 40 countries in the world and that the Northern Ireland Environment Agency was the worst he has ever come across, Fidelma O'Kane told me in a previous episode. Fidelma told me about how government officials were being wined and dined by mining oligarchs in five-star hotels and how they were all great buddies altogether. In Ghana, where there are plans to devastate some of the most biodiverse forests in the world to get the bauxite to make the clean and green aluminium, it's just the same. Environmental protector Perk Pomway who we'll hear from in the next episode, told me that, yes, we have the EPA. Unfortunately, we don't see a lot of work being done to protect the environment. We are not satisfied with the work they are currently doing in the country. And also because it's a government institution and there's some level of allegiance and loyalty to their political leaders. I told Perk about the Irish EPA's reputation for protecting industry before the environment. Yeah, he replied, it's likewise here in this country also. Close to Ghana, the country of Guinea supplies much of the bauxite that ends up in Limerick, poisoning land, air, water, people and animals. The Ghanaian Regional Directorate of Environment claims that the devastation brought about by the bauxite mining industry, and I quote, have not been significant enough to impact on the climate, water or food balance. Poison water, poison soil, poisoned air, poison fish and animals, poison people, but nothing to see here protect the oligarchs at all cost. It's the same story with mining everywhere. 
I've seen what mining waste does to rivers in Brazil, how it kills all life for 600 kilometers to the sea and into the sea, how it smothers the land and destroys the water table, how it poisons the air. Here's an excerpt from a 1985 article in McKill magazine about what the air was like when you lived beside a mining waste dump in Tipperary in Ireland. A 40-foot high, 147-acre plateau of mining waste is lying in a valley near Nina, County Tipperary. When the wind rises, clouds of poisonous dust blow from the plateau onto neighbouring land, causing human illness and the death of animals. The problem is getting worse. On Sunday, February 10th this year, the tailings pond started to blow again. Thick, lead-filled dust blew like a black fog for six miles into the countryside near Nina, County Tipperary. Geraldine Hogan and her family were living a few hundred yards from it. By Tuesday, Geraldine, who was seven months pregnant, was spitting up blood. Her doctor came out to see her. The house was a health hazard, said Dr. Maureen Carmody. By Thursday, Geraldine was in Nina Hospital. On Friday, her husband John evacuated the rest of the family. Neve two and Adele five. Soon afterwards, John's mother moved out of her house, which was next door to them. The mine was closed in 1982. A 1999 EPA report stated that the tailings dump posed a perpetual risk to human health and the environment. A perpetual risk. A 2006 story in the Irish Times wrote about how no real action had been taken to address the toxic waste and about how there was little or no accountability from the mining companies or the state. Almost 40 years after the mine was closed, a 2021 study found that riverbed sediments containing lead concentrations six times higher than acceptable limits. There are thousands of these mega mining dumps all over the world. They can remain toxic for thousands of years. It is impossible to have a mining dump without affecting the water. Groundwater is gone, mining engineer Peter Jar tells me in the next episode. They tell us that all of these horror stories were about mining in the bad old days. That modern mining is so much better. Modern mining is actually worse when it comes to waste because of the declines in ore quality. Waste quantities have actually doubled in the last 50 years, so dumps are twice as big as they used to be. In Limerick, near the red mud dump, from the bauxite processing to make clean and green aluminium, the birds and animals died. Men got heart attacks, women had miscarriages, children got sick, and the Irish state, being finally forced to act, brought together multiple departments and agencies to create a multi-million pounds report that would whitewash everything to give a clean bill of health to industry and to blame the families that suffered. Let me give you one tiny example of the whitewashing. Over a two-year period, the Gagan family had 20 separate blood samples taken from them. Every single one of these samples were mysteriously lost. How exactly do you lose every single one of 20 samples taken over a two-year period? It's not credible. It's incredible. To this very day that I am recording this on, July 25th, 2023, the pollution has destroyed and is destroying the health of the Gagans and probably many others. The Irish state, not alone, did not protect its citizens. It tried to destroy their character, their good name. Rumours were spread. 
the notorious Frank Dunlop was employed by Okinish Illumina to massage the message. Meanwhile, multiple organs of the Irish state did somersaults in order to make industry seem like the innocent and aggrieved victim. Why? The Irish state wanted to send a clear message. Multinationals, when we tell you we have your back, we mean it. When we tell you we have practical environmental regulations, we mean it. When we tell you that if you locate here, we will protect your interests, come what may, we mean it. When it comes to the environment, the Irish government has always had to be dragged, kicking and screaming and forced to clean up its act by the European Union. Wherever and whenever the Irish state could downplay, evade and avoid environmental regulations, it did so with gusto, because being a dumping ground for toxins was seen as a great way to encourage the location here of multinationals with toxic dumps to fill. Since the advent of the US Environmental Protection Agency in the early 70s, environmental regulations began to tighten there. That reduced profits for chemical and pharmaceutical and other dirty corporations. Ireland saw a wonderful opportunity. With a wink and a nod, we would offer these corporations practical, light-touch environmental regulations and as a bonus, they could self-regulate and we would just take their word for it, being the practical, can-do, friendly people that we are. One of the biggest industrial prizes captured by this policy was Alkinish Alumna, which is now the largest processor of alumna in Europe. Aluminium is touted as one of these wonderful green metals. Our smartphones and computers demand it. Our electric vehicles demand it. However, the story of aluminum is far from green. While being one of the most common materials in the Earth's crust, aluminum is best concentrated in a soft rock called bauxite. And bauxite is formed under tropical forests found in the Amazon, Africa and Asia. To get the bauxite, strip mining is required, which devastates large areas of forest. In our next episode, we'll hear from Perk Pommier, a Ghanaian environmental protector, about the devastation bauxite mining causes in Ghana. Pat and Nula Gagan met through politics. They believed in the political system. They believed that the Irish state would protect them. When they and their neighbours heard that there was going to be an investigation, they were truly hopeful. It took just 17 days for those hopes to be dashed, to realise that the state was not there to support them, but to bury them, to blame them, to frame them, and to have it said that they were bad farmers, that the reason the animals were dying was because they were bad farmers. We learned very quickly not to trust these people, Nula said. We recorded everything, she said. They have all the tricks in the book, Pat said ruefully. Our Earth's environment is dying. Humans took a paradise and in a couple of hundred years have turned it into a toxic dump. We desperately need Irish politicians and civil servants to leave the growth debt cult. Our obsession with growth has become a cancer on the environment. We need a true environment protection agency. We need a genuinely independent, powerful agency who has constitutional duties and powers to protect the environment, who has the authority to stop any activity that damages the environment. And that means stopping, or at least seriously curtailing most mining because it is mining and all that it signifies that has been a core cause of the multiple extinction level crises we now face. Next episode we'll hear about how mining devastates Ghana and we'll also hear from Pietro Jarre 
an expert in mining with over 30 years of experience. According to Pietro, there is no such thing as sustainable mining. Thanks for listening to After the Gold Rush, a podcast series about how rural Ireland has been selected as a green sacrifice zone by the global mining industry and what local communities can do about it. Please get active and spread the word. For more episodes, visit afterthegoldrushpodcast.com.